Welcome to Desert City Church's podcast. Thanks for listening in. What you are about to hear is a sermon given live at one of our Sunday gatherings. We are a new church serving neighborhoods on the edge of North Phoenix and Scottsdale, Arizona. Our sermons are ongoing conversations around a sacred text or scripture in which we find the story of Jesus. We hope they inspire you to love God and others more. If we can serve you in any way or answer any questions about our community, please don't hesitate to ask. You can find out more info at DesertCityChurch.com. I'll start in Isaiah 8, 21. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. They will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nice passage, little Christmas story, right? Imagine like Buddy the Elf trying to read that. Like there's no way. It's just so, so dark. And chapter 9, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. These are the words of Isaiah the prophet. As we look at these words Uh, We talked a little bit last week about the context, that this is a time for the people of God when uh, they've been kind of taken over by this this foreign power, the Assyrians, and they find themselves in a a place where they've been conquered, and uh, they're crying out to God for a Savior. And as Isaiah writes these words, they're prophetic in a way, but he's anticipating something. He's anticipating that God is going to move for his people. He's going to act on their behalf. And we talked about how Isaiah's words, when he starts to describe this anticipation, this great hope that God is going to be coming, he starts to describe this idea of this this Savior that comes. And he describes so clearly uh, who Jesus is 600 years before Jesus comes that a lot of scholars say that it's almost like Isaiah's, he's almost like retelling the story. It's almost like he's giving an account of something that's already happened. Some would call Isaiah even uh, the book of Isaiah the fifth gospel. It seems like it's more than just this prediction or this anticipation, but it's this proclamation of what God is doing in the world. And as he anticipates God moving in the world, he uses these different phrases to describe who this Savior is going to be. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. Last week, we talked about this idea of the wonderful counselor, that this anticipation that, that God would enter, would, would enter into the world and this person would be a wonderful counselor. And we, we talked about what that, that wonderful counselor means for our life. God is approachable. We can come to him. We come to him with whatever we have. He listens to us. He hears us. He guides us. Gives us wisdom. The second phrase, the second title that Isaiah gives is mighty God. Mighty God. And mighty God is what I want to talk about today. Mighty God, some Hebrew translations talk about an actual mighty warrior. 
that this is a, a warrior God, this figure that's going to come in. And, and, and for the people of God who are conquered by an outside force, this would be like, this is the hope, is that, that God would interact in a way where he would come in as this mighty warrior to free them uh, from all that enslave. The mighty warrior has a, 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 a kind of a, an idea of strength. And really what Isaiah is doing is, as Isaiah writes this passage, he's anticipating the incarnation of divine strength. God is going to come, this mighty God, and he's going to work on our behalf here and now. Isaiah anticipates the incarnation of divine strength in this world. And we know this the story, the, the one that Isaiah is talking about, uh, eventually Jesus comes. Jesus, the Son of God. The incarnation of this divine strength. Uh, Jesus comes uh, for, for Christmas, which, we're, which we'll talk about, representing this divine strength. The early church uh, tried to consider uh, who Jesus was and what he did in this world. In Colossians, one of their, uh, one of their leaders, Paul, trying to make sense of what Jesus was and who he was, writes these words. And these words about Jesus kind of exclaim, explain this, that he's the mighty God. It says in Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So the early church, when they wanted to know what God was like, they would say that Jesus is the image of God. We want to know what God is like. We look to Jesus, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. And, to through, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his bloodshed on the cross. Some pretty powerful words talking about Jesus, this incarnation of divine strength, this image of the invisible God, omnipotent power in the form of a person. All rulers and authorities, Jesus is sovereign over all. We worship this mighty God who reveals himself through his son, Jesus. And we consider kind of this cosmic Christ, this, this God who's created the universe. What we find is there's great power, there's great might, and this sovereignty. I ran into another extremely powerful force in this world in the last two months. My baby daughter, Lila, Lila Claire. We see a picture of Lila, yes unbelievable power in the form of a baby. I can tell you this because I haven't slept well in weeks. It's amazing <laughs> the power of a baby. If you've had a baby, you understand you have this, this little tiny human. It's like a human, I guess. <laughs> and and it, it possesses this, this power that no other human can possess, right? I mean, my baby Lila, she, she's unbelievably captivating to me, and she doesn't communicate anything. Yet she can hold my attention. We think about how she doesn't demand anything from me, yet her very nature compels me to give my all to her. It compels me to love her sacrificially. 
There's nothing I can get back in return from her, uh, but it has complete control over all of my actions. This is something that's so beautiful about children is this unbelievable power that they possess, and it's, it captures your heart in such a way that you have to give the baby your all, or you have to completely just separate and get away. There's no in-between. The baby requires unconditional love. It draws something out of us as humans, something so powerful, this act of unconditional love. And it's interesting to me that when we talk about this mighty God, when we talk about this Jesus, this image of the invisible God, who's sovereign over all, the story of Christmas is all of that power coming to earth in the form of a baby. This Christmas story is revealing to us something about this God that we worship, this God that is sovereign, mighty, uncontainable, infinite. This incarnation of divine strength comes in the form of a baby. And sometimes as we kind of move through Christmas, we forget about just how radical and profound and revealing that idea is. God became a baby, entered the world as a, an infant, entered the world as fragile and dependent. Max Lucata says this, considering these words that God shows up as a baby. He says, the omnipotent in one instant made himself breakable. He who had spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God as fetus, holiness sleeping in a womb, the creator of life being created. God was given eyebrows and elbows and two kidneys and a spleen. He stretched against the walls and floated in the amniotic fluids of his mother. God became a baby. Omnipotent power filtered into a completely dependent infant. As we consider Christmas, there's a couple things that we need to wrestle with. Two questions that I want to explore when we talk about this idea of the mighty God. We consider the might of God and the incarnation. What does this incarnation of Christmas teach us about the nature of God and his power? The second question is, what does it teach us about how God's power works? The story of Christmas. God coming in a baby. What does that teach us about the, the power of God? And what does it teach us about how that power works in this world? As last week, we, we take a glimpse of, of Jesus in the Gospels to kind of understand the image of the invisible God, who God is, what God is like. In John chapter 13, there's this really interesting story. And uh, it's not really a Christmas story, actually. It's a story that we usually talk about at Easter, but I think it reveals something that helps us answer these questions. In John chapter 13, we have this story of the Last Supper, where Jesus is kind of getting ready for his death. He's preparing for his death, and he's with his disciples. And as he's kind of giving them final instructions, uh, it says these words. Let me just read in John chapter 13. It says, It was just before the Passover feast, and Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. But you're like, yeah, you just got here though, right? I mean, it's Christmas. 
Yeah, not a good joke. Okay. Um, Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. That's an important, that's an important line right there. It says he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, some of Simon, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. So we're talking about this idea of the mighty God. And in this moment, Jesus understands that God has placed all things under his power. That he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took out his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a jar and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. This is a story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And we've, there's a lot of ways to kind of unpack this story, this, this act of him washing his disciples' feet. We can look at the context and we know uh, that, you know, that in the disciples' time, everyone walks everywhere. You can't get in your car and drive. And so if you're walking everywhere, um, you're probably going to have some pretty dirty, stinky feet, right? And so to, like, to just be custom, you get to a house, and, and the people that were servants at that house or, or whoever, was that, they would wash your feet as a custom, hospitable gesture. Like, we, we know that your feet, before you, it's almost like us washing our hands, but usually this is something that the servants would do. And here we have Jesus, the Son of God, omnipotent power, who says that all of the power that God has has been placed under him. The next act that he does is he takes out a towel and he starts to wash the feet of his disciples. An act that servants would do. An act of service. When that happens, it goes on to say, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on their clothes and returned to his place. And he said, do you understand what I have done for you? And there's all sorts of like, the disciples are kind of upset about this, like that Jesus, the Son of God, this great rabbi, this, this man that has been performing miracles would do such an act. And so one of the disciples, Peter, is like, you cannot do this. I can't believe you'd wash my feet. I should be washing your feet. And Jesus says, do you understand that what I have done for you? He says, I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Talks about how uh, it, it, when, when Jesus goes to wash his disciples' feet, as he's doing that, he even understands that, that one of these disciples is going to betray him, even betray him to his death. And he chooses to wash the feet of the one who's about to betray him. Omnipotent power. And he uses it to wash the feet of people who are about to betray him. We want to know what the power of God is like. What we find is sacrificial love and service. Here Jesus is washing his disciples' feet, and he says to do as he does, and he says, if you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. He connects blessed knowing to doing here. The power of God on display through serving. Another story in Matthew chapter 20, there's kind of a, a discussion that takes place between some of the disciples' mom, who's trying to figure out kind of what Jesus is up to, where he's going, and she has this hope that since her sons are following Jesus, that when Jesus finally uh, becomes king, that he'll uh, kind of appoint them 
kind of at the right hand of him, and this kind of creates some tension between him and the, the disciples and the disciples whose mom spoke up. And so finally Jesus says, he calls them together and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What we find as we look for the image of the invisible God, as we look to the life of Jesus and we want to understand the power of the mighty God, what we find is that God's true power is conveyed through sacrificial love and service. The story of the gospel is the story of this God who's created everything, who's sovereign over everything, who has omnipotent power, who knows everything about us, and has chosen to give his life, to bring life to each of us. True power is on display through humility and service to others, and we see that in the story of Jesus. Does the Christmas story tell us that God was willing to become man, to take on the form of a human, not just that, but as a baby. There's something about his power, as C.S. Lewis says, that he doesn't use his power to ravish, he uses it to woo. He invites us, he compels us into this love story. This is important because we have all sorts of images of who God is and what he's up to in this world. But if Christmas tells us anything about God, it tells us of God's goodness, that all of his power is filtered into this baby. It invites us into a life of love and sacrifice, that God would come out of heaven and make himself nothing. This is compelling. For me, uh, I, I, I think I've experienced the most understanding of God um, and what God is up to um, through my mom through her love for me throughout growing up, this service towards me, this unconditional love over time, uh, her never giving up on me, her being patient with me. In a sense, I got to experience God, the image of the invisible God through another person. Sacrificial love, service to others, unbelievably compelling. And here we have Jesus the personification of divine strength, loving and sacrificing for us. The second question that we have to consider with Christmas is, what does this story teach us about how God's power works? If Christmas tells us of uh, the goodness of God through him becoming a human, the sacrificial love towards us, we also understand that this power, this mighty God, uh, works in a, a certain way here in this world. The power works uh, as we surrender to it. Uh, there's a, another passage written by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12.9. And Paul has this vision, and uh, God meets him in prayer, and he's kind of talking about some of the stuff that he's dealing with. And what we find is that, that Paul, uh, Paul talks about how he has this thorn in his flesh. He's been given this uh, thing that hinders 
kind of his life, and it doesn't really give us details of what it means. Um, but the thorn in the flesh could be could be metaphor for um, maybe some some illness that he has. Some say that Paul was uh, had epilepsy, and he would he would have these seizures, and he couldn't really figure out what it was, and so like it, it, it hindered kind of his work uh, because he would he would break into seizures randomly. Uh, other people say that uh, the apostle Paul had this. Uh, had this sin that he, he couldn't shake, that he couldn't get rid of. Maybe it was an addiction. And when, you, when you're around um, addicts, they start to hear some of Paul's language where he talks about, like, there's good that I want to do, but I don't do, and the, the good that I'm not, the things that I'm not supposed to do, I do. And, and, and he talks about how he's the worst of all sinners. We don't really know what Paul's thorn in his flesh is, but we know that there's something that Paul, as a human, is wrestling with. And as he's considering his relationship with God, uh, he goes on to say this in 2 Corinthians 9. As he was considering the thorn in his flesh, God speaks to him and he says this to Paul. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, says God, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more, says Paul, all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions. And difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul's talking about this thorn in his flesh, this thing that he can't shake, this weakness that he has. He says that God meets him. Says that he pleased that God would take this. He pleased to God that he would just take away this thing that he's struggling with. And God says to Paul, "My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect." in your weakness. My strength made perfect in weakness. So we want to understand how God's power in this world works. The mighty God. I would say in the kingdom of God, there's a simple equation for us as humans. Dependency on God equals God's power. Dependency on God equals God's power. When we are weak, God is strong. His grace is sufficient for us. When we are weak, he is strong. And it's interesting because Paul says, then his weaknesses, he now boasts of them. All the more, he boasts of his weaknesses, which is something that uh, seems kind of counter, counterculture, especially for, for our culture, right? I mean, I, especially me, I, I have a certain image that I try to uphold. So I don't go around like, you know, boasting to everyone my weaknesses or the things that I try to hide, the things that I'm ashamed of. I don't go around boasting uh, the things that I, you know, I, I don't want people to know about it. But as Paul boasts, there's something here that happens. It's a, it's a confession of sorts. It's a confession. He says, I'm weak. I'm in need of help. I'm in need of salvation. Confession is a, it's a very old practice and tradition of the church. And it comes with a lot of baggage, and so when we hear the word confession, uh, we don't like to do it. We don't feel comfortable. But there's, there's confession of us coming to God and saying, I'm, I'm struggling with this thing. I can't shake it. I need help. It's destroying my soul. That kind of confession we talk about, it's owning up to reality. That we come to God and we say, I need help. We simply own up to our own reality. But then there's another kind of confession uh, that may have nothing to do with 
like our brokenness, but more our desperation. We get into a situation where we realize we need help. And all we can do is cry out to God, confess, Lord, please move in my life. I need you to act. I need you to intervene for me. There's a kind of confession where we are dependent upon God for life. Paul boasts of his weaknesses, of all the ways that he comes up short. Dependency equals power. Yesterday was uh, our son Ezra's birthday. He just turned three, which is crazy that he's three already. Um, and so I was trying to figure out kind of what to do with, uh, with Ezra, and um, I thought, I'm going to start, you know, I want, I want my kids to start playing golf. Because I have like this, you know, great picture in my mind that when they're, they're teenagers, we're going to go to the golf, golfing range, play like 18 holes, and then come back in and eat a burger. And so I'm like, I'm, we're going to do that today. So I took Ezra and Micah, and I took them over to Cracker Jacks, and we played, played around to 18, putt-putt, you know, um, on the obstacle course. course, it was great. And uh, it's interesting watching Micah and Ezra play golf um, because we're kind of a competitive family. And so, like, as we uh, <clears throat> were competing, the three of us, me and my six-year-old and three-year-old, um, <laughs> It got pretty serious, especially between me and the six-year-old. And uh, he actually beat me, uh, which is crazy. Uh, but, but Ezra was right there with us. You know, he wanted to compete. And uh, as we were playing, you know, he could barely hold the club. Um, but he would go around hitting the ball. And sometimes he would be great, and sometimes he wouldn't be. But he wanted to compete with us. He was right there with Micah. And so as we would approach a hole, and we'd take our approach shot off the tee and you know, put it about 10 feet into the hole, um, there were sometimes where Ezra, Ezra just wouldn't let me come near him. He wanted to do it on his own, and he would swing, he'd miss, he'd hit it, you know, into like the other, other side of the course. He was quite powerful for a three-year-old. Um, and then there were times where like he wanted to keep up with Micah, so he would be like, I'm going to call dad in for this one, right? So he'd be like, dad, you know, come help, come help me on this one. Um, and so I would go and I'd help him, we'd hit it, try to hit it straight to the hole. And so it was almost like he could try to keep up with Micah until he couldn't, and then he would rely on me to help him. So we get to the end of the, uh, end of the round, and his score is uh, right next to Micah's. I think Micah shot like, he actually shot like par for the back nine, which is great. But um, he was like four over par, then Ezra was like seven over par. But we all know that Ezra couldn't do this on his own, right? We all know that the only reason that Ezra was competitive in this game is because he allowed me to help him. He allowed me to uh, guide him. He allowed me to, uh, to putt for him in places. And he also allowed me to not look at the times where he needed mulligans, right? Um, and it's interesting as you just to, to kind of watch him and Micah interact and allow him to allow me to help out in different ways. We have this picture of God in our life. I think that he guides us very similarly. Like, obviously, our life isn't a putt-putt golf game. But there's times in our life uh, where it's like the only way we're going to get there, the only way we're going to hit it straight, the only way we're going to be able to keep up is to simply say, God, I need help. God, I need you to come and hit this for me. I need you to help me straighten out my swing, uh, whatever it is. There's this dependency. We have this picture of the power of God, this mighty Father, 
who is sovereign over our life. Um, I was just thinking it's the same thing as my son's golf game. How do we depend on God and allow him to guide us through life? This is how God's power works. When we come to him and say, help, I surrender. Same as with Ezra. You know, I, I was excited for Ezra's efforts yesterday, and I wasn't necessarily going to step in, but like when he would ask me, it was like, how could you resist that cute little three-year-old? Um, and I think it's the same way with God. He's like waiting here for us to help. He has all of the power, all of the might in this world. And we're invited to rely on him. We're invited to depend on him with our lives, with everything that we do. One of my favorite theologians is uh, an old German pastor that didn't quite survive World War II uh, for his stance against the Nazis. His name's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says this about Christmas. He says, who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly? Whoever finally lays down all power, all honor, all reputation, all vanity, all arrogance, all individualism beside the manger. Whoever remains lowly and lets God alone be high. Whoever looks at the child in the manger and sees the glory of God precisely in his loneliness. The story of Christmas is the mighty God entering into this world. The story of Christmas is all of this power becoming vulnerable and revealing a heart that cares about us, a heart that woos us, that compels us, and it invites us into relationship. As the band comes up, we're going to close with a couple of questions and then communion. But two questions to reflect on when it comes to this mighty God. Two questions. First is, where might you need to display true strength by serving someone else? If we are God's people, if we are followers of him, then we do what God does in this world. We join him in this work. In what way do you need to display true strength by serving someone else? Maybe that person's in your family. Maybe that person's in work. Maybe that person's in your neighborhood. How do you need to just display true strength through sacrificial serving? The second question is, where do you need to humbly acknowledge your need for the mighty God? Maybe this is a time of you confessing that need. Maybe it's a time of you saying, I need help. I'm struggling. God's grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in your weakness. Dependency on him equals true power. As we head towards communion today, let's reflect on these questions. How do we use our lives to serve others the way that God served us? How do we tap into that power by simply surrendering to him today? Let me pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this day. Lord, we thank you for this story of Christmas. Lord, we, we know that you are God, that you are the creator the universe, that you were sovereign, that you were mighty, that you were powerful, and that you love us so much that you meet us on a personal level. And the sovereignty that you display throughout the universe, Lord, is very personal. 
you invite us into this relationship with you as you have come to earth. As you have said, I loved you so much that I I'm sacrificing myself. Lord, we thank you for this great love that you would know us. Lord, today we just want to come to you as we prepare our hearts for Christmas. We want to make room in our heart for you. That you would be center. That you'd be sovereign, that you'd be God of our lives. And Lord, as we, as we turn to you, Lord, we just uh, we invite you to move in us. Your love is so compelling, Lord. Today, as we move to communion, we acknowledge this great love. Lord, as we take bread that represents this incarnation, this represents your body that's here, that is present, that came to earth, we give thanks. We break it open just as you broke your body open on the cross. As we take the juice, Lord, we acknowledge that uh, your grace is sufficient for us. We acknowledge that this juice represents this blood that was poured out, that it was shed on the cross to bring us life. Lord, through the breaking of your body and the pouring out of your, breath, of your blood, you bring us life. We remember that, Lord, and we give thanks. We ask you to meet us here in this time right now. In your son's name we pray. Amen.